following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Riley's going to read our scripture passage for us this morning. Thanks, Riley. The reading today is from Luke chapter 20, verse 20 to 26. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Thanks, Riley. Now, I want to ask you for a minute to think about something. Don't say anything out loud. Just think about what comes to your mind when I say the words faith and politics? Right, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just think about what images come to your mind, what associations come to your mind. Some of you may be getting very uncomfortable right now, wondering where this sermon is going to go. Uh, all sorts of connotations. It's a pretty potent combination when you put those two words together, isn't it? It, it can be a pretty loaded kind of thing, faith and politics. Uh, let me show you a couple of images that might just stir your thinking a little bit more. Um, one from the New Zealand election this year. This is Judith Collins praying in a church. So um, m- most of you would have seen that image. You remember that? And very convenient that the cameras were there to capture it. And so that was an interesting juxtaposing of faith and politics, wasn't it? And, and those two kind of getting merged together there. And then, of course, that moment in the U.S. when Donald Trump stood in front of a church holding a Bible in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests, and uh, that generated a lot of reaction around just exactly what was going on there with faith and politics. We won't even go any further down that path, but that got a lot of reaction. And it raises these thorny questions for us as Christians of how, how do these, do these two things even belong together? Does, does faith have anything to say in the political realm? Does politics have anything to do with, with Christian faith or any faith? And should these things ever be joined or should they be in totally separate worlds? Uh, can Christians engage in political life? Should we have a voice in political issues or should we just stay out of it altogether? What kind of relationship should there be between Christianity and the government or between the church and the state as it's often described? These are tough questions, and there's no easy answers. And, and they're not new questions either. These are questions that people have wrestled with for a long, long time. They're not new in our age. People down through the centuries have asked similar questions. All the way back in Jesus' day, in the first century, in Israel, people were asking questions like this. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were asking, well, what kind of relationship should we have with the governing authorities who are over us? Which in that case was the Roman Empire. They were the ones in charge. And so people were asking, well, what, what, what kind of, how do we approach this? How do we approach this empire? How should we relate to the government in, in our own day? 
And it's those kinds of questions that generate this interaction that Jesus has with these people in this passage, which give us some really good insights into what this relationship between faith and politics can and should look like. So let's have a little closer look at this passage and what's going on here. Jesus gets asked this question. And it's not, it's not an innocent question at all. This is not just a casual conversation. What's happening here is that you have these religious leaders within Israel who are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They don't like him. They don't like what he's teaching. And so they're trying to find a basis for some kind of allegation against Jesus. They can take him before the governor and have him arrested. So they're really trying to snare him. And so they send some spies to Jesus in an effort to try and get him to say something that they could use, something that could be the basis of some sort of allegation. They want to try and trap him up somehow. So the spies come to Jesus, and the issue that they choose to try and trip him up is the issue of taxes. It's a very good one, isn't it? I mean, that's going to trip anyone up. That definitely would have worked on me. So they're going to go with taxation as the issue to try and get Jesus to say something that could be incriminating. And they say that the question they ask in verse 22 is, is it right... For us to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar was the Roman emperor. To Caesar or not. Now let me just give you the background to this. The actual tax that was required in this day was one denarius per adult male per year. And a denarius is only one day's wage. So it's a pretty minimal tax rate. That's not very significant at all compared to what we pay now. The power of that tax was not so much in the monetary value it was in what it symbolized. When you pay that tax to Caesar, it was this recognition that the Romans were in charge. It was this recognition, especially for the Jewish people who were an occupied people, even within their own land. They, they, had, they were in their land, but they weren't free. They were under the Roman Empire. And so when they pay that tax to Caesar, they pay that coin to Caesar, it was a reminder to them that the Romans were the ones who made the rules. They were the ones who were in charge. This big, vast, brutal, oppressive empire they were the big show in town, and the Jewish people were subservient to the empire of Rome. That's what was involved. That's the symbolism that was involved in paying taxes. And so for that reason, some of the Jews felt that there's no way we should be paying taxes to Caesar. I mean, some of the Jewish people felt like we should actually refuse to submit to the government, and we should resist, and we should revolt, and we should rise up, and we should refuse anything like this, because they felt that it was compromising their faith towards God. But then another group of people felt like, well, no, we should pay our tax because if we just pay the Romans this tax, they let us get on with life. And if we just pay them the coin, then, then we can do what we want to do and, and we can keep the temple going and we can keep the temple operations going and they're not going to shut us down. So let's just pay the coin and deal with it and then we can move on with life. So you had these two different schools of thought and there was this ongoing debate within the Jewish community around exactly how they should relate to authority. And so what they're trying to do here is force Jesus to take a side. Because they figure either way he's trapped, right? Either way. If he says, yes, we should pay the tax to Caesar, then he's got offside with a whole lot of Jewish people who feel like that's totally selling out. That's totally selling out to God by paying the tax to Caesar. On the other hand, if he says, no, we shouldn't pay the tax, then immediately they get, he gets taken before the governor on charges of treason because that's illegal. That makes him a criminal. And so these spies figure we've got him. Either, either way, we've got him. And then Jesus masterfully finds a way through 
this debate. And he says this, verse 24. Show me a denarius. It's a coin, right? So, so they would have had coins. They would have carried coins. Someone pulls out a coin and shows it to Jesus. He says, whose image and inscription are on the coin? Well, whose image was on the coin? Caesar. Yeah, it was, it was Caesar. There would have been a few different coins minted at the time, but they all had the image of Caesar on them. Now, I've got an image of one of these coins here. I don't know how easily you can see that, but this is the kind of coin that we're talking about. The Caesar who was in charge at this point was Tiberius Caesar. And so you have this image of Caesar. Probably on the other side was this image of the goddess Roma, who was a symbol of Rome, the empire of Rome. But around Caesar, around his head, were the words, well, that's Latin, but the English translation is Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Tiberius' father was Augustus. He was considered after his death to be a god. And therefore Tiberius, because he was his son, was considered to be the son of a god. So you've got this interesting moment here with Jesus, the son of God, and talking about Caesar, who was considered to be the son of a god. So you can see by paying that tax, I mean, that's making some pretty big claims about who Caesar was. You know, thankfully, when we have our little coins with Queen Elizabeth on them, it's not claiming her as a god. But this is what the Jews were dealing with. Caesar was being deified. And this was right there on their coins. This is why people had a hard time with these kinds of issues. So Jesus looks at this coin. Whose face, whose inscription is on the coin? And they reply, Caesar's. And then verse 25, here's the key statement. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? Now, that's a really important statement. But it can also be a very confusing statement. What exactly does Jesus mean here? What does he mean? Give to God what's God's? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's? What, what exactly does belong to Caesar? What exactly does belong to God? How do I give that to Caesar and to God? How do I know what goes in each category? How does all this work? Well, <clears throat> one of the ways that this sometimes gets understood one interpretation is that Jesus is setting up here two distinct realms of authority. <clears throat> you could look at it like this. We've got God's things and Caesar's things. So God's got one sphere of authority. Caesar has another sphere of authority. And when we say Caesar, of course, we, we could be talking about any human government. So you could substitute any government, any ruler in that category. It happened to be Caesar at the time. So on this model, you've got God over here, he has authority over this area or this realm of life. And, and the government has its authority over here and this realm of life. So to give to Caesar means that we pay our taxes to Caesar because that's part of the government's sphere of authority. And to give to God, what belongs to God, means that, among other things, we pay our tithe to the church because that's God's sphere of authority. And these things are kept separate. They don't meet they don't interact, and they are mutually exclusive. This, by the way, is the basis of the theory around the separation of church and state, which is particularly big in the U.S., even though it, do, it doesn't always get practiced consistently there, but this is the idea. Two separate realms of authority, and they should never meet. The problem is, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, I have not found a single scholar who thinks that's what Jesus was saying. And it doesn't take much thought to understand why. When you, when you start looking at this model, for starters, 
it, it carves the world up into these two realms, the, the spiritual realm over here and the secular realm over here, which is totally foreign to the Bible. There is no big split down the middle of the universe with God's stuff on one side and everything else on the other side. That's not how the, how the biblical story reads at all. That's not how the Christian worldview holds together. And secondly, this really reduces God to just having a little corner over here with God's things and God's toys that he can play with, but don't go encroaching on these other areas over here. Well, what about the verse that says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? This just doesn't seem like the way Jesus would talk about God. So I think there's a better way of understanding what Jesus is saying. And it comes back to the question that he asks about the coin. Now have a look at this again. He says in verse 24, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. The word image is the Greek word icon. And it's the same word that is used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about human beings being made in the image of God. Every one of us are made in God's image. We are stamped with the indelible image of God in that we reflect who God is in various ways. And so what Jesus is saying is, give to Caesar that which bears Caesar's image. That's this coin. So give that coin to Caesar. That's fine. That belongs to him. But give to God that which bears God's image. And what is that? Us, right? All of us, like our whole lives, belong to God. We are the image of God. If we're going to give to God what bears his image, we are giving the totality of ourselves to him. This is what God desires from us, is that we, we belong to him and that we would give all of who we are to him. Not just a part of us, not just a tithe to a church, not just a few spiritual practices, but the entirety of our life. We are the image of God, therefore we belong to God. Now, what that leads you to is a different way of thinking about this relationship between God and Caesar or God and government. And it looks like this. Caesar's things exist within God's things. So under this model, God has authority over everything. And this is, this is how the Bible describes it. Right? God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's God of everything, not just a little department. He's Lord of all. I think of the words of a theologian who said, there is no square inch of creation over which God does not say that is mine. God has authority over every part of life, not just churchy life, not just your, quote, spiritual life, all of life. He is the Lord of culture, he is the Lord of society, and yes, he is even the Lord of politics. He has rightful authority over every single realm. But within the authority of God, he delegates authority to earthly government. Within and under the overall jurisdiction of God, he delegates an amount of authority to earthly government. And this is exactly why in Romans 13:1 we have a very clear statement at the bottom of this verse, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, you might not like that statement because you might not like the government, but it's in the Bible. So you're either going to have to rip that page out of your Bible or you're going to have to do something with it. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, that does not mean that God handpicks every president 
and every prime minister and every mayor. But it does mean that God is ultimately responsible for earthly government and that he maintains his sovereignty over all things. Human rulers rule under the authority of God. They might not realize that. Our prime minister may not realize that she is serving under the authority of God. But that doesn't change the reality. It doesn't change the fact that every earthly authority is instituted by God and instituted for the good of its citizens. Instituted so that earthly rulers might administer justice and might administer order and the healthy functioning of society for well-being, for the common good, for the flourishing and thriving of humanity. This is why government is put in place. But the authority of government exists under the authority of God. Jesus made this really clear when he talked to Pilate. He had that interaction with Pilate, the Roman governor, just before his execution. And one of the lines he said, one of the things he said to Pilate, he said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now, Pilate didn't acknowledge that, but it didn't change the fact. Every earthly authority, every earthly ruler, every king, every president, every emperor, every mayor, every prime minister exercises their authority under the authority of God. Now, this has some implications for us, doesn't it? You come back and think about our responsibilities now. Come back and think about what Jesus said about give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. So if, if you think about this, this model, we're not talking now about two different spheres of authority. We're talking about one within the other. And that means when you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you are giving to God what is God's because that's part of the whole picture. When we give to the government what belongs to the government, we are giving to God what is God's. This is an integrated picture, which is why, again, Romans 13, 1, you come back to that verse. It says, let everyone subject themselves to the governing authorities because the authorities that exist have been established by God. So when we submit ourselves to the earthly authorities that are over us, this is not something separate to our Christian faith. Right? It's not like our Christian faith and our practice is over here. That's just going to church and reading our Bible. Everything else is over here. No, no, what Jesus is saying is when you pay that tax, that is an act of service to God because God's Lord of it all. And these earthly authorities only exist under the authority of God. So when you pay that tax, when that P-A-Y-K-E comes out, when you pay your tax at the end of the year, that is an act of service to God. Some of you are having a very hard time understanding that and, and accepting that, that paying tax could be an act of serving God. Paying tax could even be an act of worship to God. How could this be? Because the authorities that exist have been established by God. When you serve the authorities, you are serving God. When you pay your speeding ticket, when you pay your parking fine, or even better, when you don't speed, you are serving who? God, ultimately. Yes, you are serving the law of the land and you're submitting yourself to the laws that have been made, but ultimately, you are serving God because by giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, you are. That is part of giving to God what belongs to God. It's a total picture. When you wear a face mask on public transport, let's just use a really recent example. What's happening? You're not just being a good citizen. You are serving God. It doesn't matter whether you agree with that law. 
It doesn't matter whether you think that's the stupidest law in the world. What matters is that is the law. And if you're going to serve God, that is part of your Christian service. Read Romans 13, 1 again. It is right there in black and white. Submit yourselves to the earthly authorities that have been instituted by God. When you put that face mask on, getting on the bus tomorrow, getting on the ferry, getting on the train, just think about that. I'm actually serving God by submitting myself to the laws of this nation. Now, I know some of you are arguing with me in your head. You've got all kinds of reasons why this isn't right. This can't be true. And I know one of the arguments is, what about when the government gets it wrong? And what about when the government oversteps? And what about when the government does something that contradicts our faith? And yes, there are absolutely examples in Scripture of times when followers of God refuse to obey the law. That's right there. There's several of them. The classic example is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament, where the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, makes a decree that all of the citizens have to bow down and worship an idol, a statue of him. And these three Jewish men say, no, not going to do it. Because to worship that would mean we're not worshiping God. So they refuse to obey the government. So there are times, this is called civil disobedience, there are times when Christians can and should resist a law or a decree that is made. But when you look at these examples in Scripture, these are times when something in our faith is fundamentally compromised. When there is a, a law that is passed that prevents you from giving allegiance to God, that strikes at the very foundation of the gospel and the very foundation of the Christian faith. If there is a law like that that is passed, then yes, we have a higher duty to God above any earthly authority. If the prime minister says tomorrow there's going to be a big statue in Aotea Square, it's going to be a big gold statue of Jacinda Ardern, we're going to put it there, and when the music starts playing, you better bow down and worship. Better bow down and worship the idol. What would we say? <laughs> that would get some interesting reactions. The, the correct answer is no. Right? The, the biblical answer is no, we wouldn't. Because we, our first allegiance, our primary allegiance is to God. And we're not going to do something that compromises our allegiance to God. But this does not mean that any time a law is passed that you don't like, you get to exercise civil disobedience. Out of, out, of, out of allegiance to God. This doesn't mean just because you think a law is not good or, or, not, or even not fair or not right or not whatever, that you can, you can play that civil disobedience card and say, well, I'm a Christian and I serve God above the law and so I'm going to disobey. No, no, we are talking about times when something fundamentally compromises your allegiance to the gospel and your allegiance to God. And, and just let me be really clear and perhaps controversial, but let me just say, the lockdowns this year did not qualify. They did not qualify. There is no way that those lockdown requirements met the threshold for an act of civil disobedience. Not if you stack it up next to the biblical examples. There's no way. Yes, they restricted our freedoms. Yes, it was inconvenient. Yes, we couldn't meet for a period of time. But were you fundamentally unable to worship God during that time? Did that compromise your, your faithfulness to God in some way? Did that strike at the heart of the Christian faith? Of course not. That would be the only time in those cases where civil disobedience 
was justified from a Christian perspective. And there is no way that social restrictions, lockdowns, and so on, meet the threshold of those biblical examples of civil disobedience. So those are the very, very rare cases. And in every other case, we are called, whether we like the laws or not, whether we agreed with them, whether we voted in these politicians or not, these are the laws that are established, and it is our Christian duty to obey them. In fact, it is part of our service to God. I didn't say this stuff, Jesus did. And Paul wrote it down. This is what the Bible commands us to do. When we give to Caesar, we are giving to God. It's part of our Christian duty of worship. All right. Just while, while we're in these controversial waters, should we just keep going? <laughs> Let me just remind you, all complaints can be sent to michael at shaw.org.nz. <laughs> and uh, we, we welcome your feedback. Uh, let me just, if, if we come back to this, to this model again, because I think this is, I found this helpful to think about what Jesus is saying and, and, and then build from there around this question, what then does healthy political engagement look like for Christians? Is there a way for Christians to engage politically? And what would that look like according to this model? What would it look like to, to be engaged in the political space in some way? Well, I think this kind of idea, this model, it prevents us from going to a couple of extremes. One extreme would be the extreme that says, we're going to take back our country for Jesus. There's some Christians who get so incredibly focused on having political influence, that's really the big deal. And that's really like what they think the Christian faith is supposed to be all about, having political influence, influencing law, influencing legislation, influencing government so that we can get laws passed that reflect biblical values and biblical priorities. And if we can do that, then we'll change the nation. And the idea is if we can get righteous people in government, we get righteous laws passed, then we'll be a righteous nation. The, the problem is that doesn't look a lot like what Jesus is really talking about. Where that takes us to, that kind of thinking, takes us to this next model where God's things and Caesar's things just become one and the same. That's where that leaves you because really you end up saying, how are we going to bring about the kingdom of God on earth? Through the kingdom of the world, through law, through legislation, through the political process. And we forget that the kingdom of God is something fundamentally different. The kingdom of God is not about influencing legislation. It's not about influencing laws. There's a place for that. But that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about the hearts and the minds and the lives of people being transformed and influenced by the power of the gospel. That is the kingdom of God. And we've got to be very careful that we do not start equating that with the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of human government. And I sometimes wonder for people in this space that put massive amounts of, of emphasis on having political influence as Christians, what the ultimate goal really is. What, where are we going to go? If you had all of that influence that you want, are you going to criminalize everything the Bible prohibits? You're going to criminalize all of the Ten Commandments? You're going to criminalize lying? We're going to criminalize adultery? We're going to criminalize breaking the Sabbath? Some of us might be in trouble. Where, where do you go with this? And you could end up in a situation much like the Old Testament. You have all the laws there. You have the perfect law. And people's hearts are still far from God. So where does that get you? Nowhere. So we've got to be very careful equating the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world and putting all our emphasis on influencing politics. There's a place for that, but let's not equate the two together. 
The other emphasis, the opposite extreme that I think this, this prevents us for, for, if we go back to the other model for a minute, Dale, the other extreme is that Christians say, we're just going to have nothing to do with politics at all. And we totally remove ourselves from that. And we say politics is just too dirty. It's too grubby. It's just, we can't have anything to do with it as Christians. So we're going to totally remove ourselves from the world. And the more extreme examples of that would be Amish communities, Mennonite communities, and so on, that are very separatist parts of the Christian church. The problem with that is you then just come back into the situation here where we're in separate worlds. God's things over here, the government's things over here. And there's a total divorcing of the two. And again, that undermines God's authority over all things. God is interested in these things. God is interested in these issues. God is the Lord of politics as well as everything else. So we've got to find a way for these things to work together. So I think there is a way for Christians to engage in political issues, political processes in a way that's faithful, in a way that's biblical, in a way that's God-honoring. And I found it helpful here to think about the biblical idea of shalom, of peace. As Christians, this is a really important concept for us. Peace. It's a word that's often used in the Bible. And that word shalom, it doesn't just mean peace in my heart. It means, literally, it means wholeness. It means taking broken pieces and putting them back together again. And this is what God is doing throughout the biblical story. He's taking broken lives and putting them back together again as we're reconciled with God. He's taken broken hearts and minds and putting the broken pieces back together again. He's taken broken families and broken marriages and broken communities and broken groups of people. And he's putting those fractured pieces back together, back together, back together. And he's doing this in and through Jesus. And so as Christians, we want to be committed to pursuing shalom. We want to be committed to pursuing shalom in our church community, but also in the broader communities across our city. We want to be God's agents of shalom in the world. Now, as we do that, as we live out shalom, as we are God's image bearers, there are times when our pursuit of shalom and the government's pursuit of the common good will overlap. Because the government also has a vision of what a healthy society looks like of what it looks like for our nation to thrive and flourish and move forward. And there will be some times where the Christian vision of shalom and the government vision of the common good overlap. And in those spaces and at those times, it is good and it is right for Christians to work cooperatively and constructively with government and government departments. A really good example of this, I think, is an organization out in West Auckland called Vision West. Some of you might have heard of them. Big organization. Now, it came out of Glen Eden Baptist Church. And they're an organization that, among many, many other things, they provide emergency housing. They provide low-cost housing for people that would struggle to afford accommodation. And they work in partnership with the Ministry of Social Development to do that. So the Ministry of Social Development is also concerned about housing and low-cost housing and so on. These two organizations are pursuing it for different reasons. You've got a group of Christians over here that are pursuing a biblical vision of shalom, which includes caring for the poor. You've got a government department here, which is trying to provide low-cost housing as part of the common good. And there is a point at which Christians can say, you know what, we can work together. It doesn't mean that we've, we share the same faith and we're doing this for different reasons. As Christians, we're seeking to do this in Jesus' name and as an outworking of the gospel. But we can work together for shalom and for the common good. And so Vision West works in with the Ministry of Social Development in seeking to provide this housing for people who are in need. It's a great example of a partnership like that. In these spaces where shalom and the common good overlap, we should look for the ways 
that we can work together, that we can be part of the political process, that we can be constructive, that we can be positive, that we can make a difference. It doesn't mean that Christians and churches should be beholden to the government. It doesn't mean that we should be dictated to by the government. I know we've got to work through those issues and be discerning. But also, it doesn't mean we should totally separate and divorce ourselves from political life. There are ways and there are spaces and there are opportunities for us to be involved in all kinds of ways, all kinds of different levels, all in the pursuit of the biblical vision of shalom. Now, let me just mention one really big caveat to all this. And this might be the most controversial thing I'll say. So I'll end with it and then I'll run away. As we do this, as we pursue shalom, as we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, as we fulfill our duty as citizens out of service to God, we should not attach the gospel to any one political party or any one political leader or any one political ideology. Because when we do that, we do a disservice to the gospel. In fact, I would argue that when we do that, that is tantamount to political idolatry. And we've made politics more important than God. We can have our political views, absolutely. And you may be more right-leaning, you may be more left-leaning, that's fine. But let's not hitch the gospel to one particular political party. Let's not hitch the gospel to one leader. Let's not start saying things like, well, if you're a Christian, you would vote this way. If you're a Christian, you would support this leader. If you're a Christian, you would do this and your allegiances would be here. Let's not assume that the gospel is only the domain of the political right or the gospel is only the domain of the political left. Anytime that Christians do that and we hitch the gospel to some form of partisan politics, we end up invariably with a diminished gospel. Because Christians can and should care about a whole range of issues, a whole range of social issues. Some of those issues are issues like abortion. And they tend to be issues that people on the political right care a lot more about. But other of those issues are issues like concern for the poor. And those are issues that people on the political left often care a lot more about. And so when we start to say, well, the gospel really belongs over here, or it's more Christian to be here or there on the political spectrum. What we're really doing is privileging one set of issues over the other. And all of these issues are equally biblical. The Bible doesn't fit neatly into our partisan politics, into our party system. The Bible speaks about issues that run the whole political spectrum, a whole range of those issues. And we should care as Christians about all of them. Now again, It's fine to have our our preferences and our political leanings. It's when we make one of those more Christian than other that we do a disservice to the gospel. What we should be doing is keeping our focus again on the vision of shalom, on that vision of human beings flourishing in the image of God, but recognizing there's a range of paths to shalom. There's a range of ways and strategies and policies around that. And we can disagree and we can discuss those things and there's a whole range of paths. But let's not say that only one of those paths is the Christian path. Let's keep our focus on the goal, which is shalom, which is peace. And let's accept there are a multitude of ways to get there. So I know we've covered some pretty heavy stuff this morning. But maybe if I could just bring us back again to that that simple and practical statement that Jesus made as he held that coin in his hand. Maybe, I mean, we don't use coins that much anymore, do we? But maybe next time you are using a coin, 
Maybe next time you get a 50 cent piece out of your pocket, just hold it and look at it for a minute. And maybe let it remind you of the words here that Jesus said. Let it remind you of that duty that we have to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. To submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every earthly authority that is instituted among men. That's right there in the Bible. And some of us need to take that to heart this morning. Maybe it'll remind us to pray for our leaders, to keep them before God. And remember that by serving them, we serve our Father in heaven. But ultimately, as you look at that coin, let it remind you of something even more important. And that is giving to God what is God's. And that is giving our whole selves to him. Every part of us, every area of our lives, inward, outward, every part of our public life, our social life, as well as our church life, every single part of it opened up and laid down before God. That is ultimately what he asks from us. So let's pray. God, we we hear your word this morning and we hear its challenge to us. And it's uncomfortable sometimes and it's confronting sometimes and it's disturbing. But we thank you that that's what your word does. And that's the power that it has. I think of the scripture that says the word of God is it's like a double-edged sword. And it penetrates and it judges and it exposes us. And we sense your word doing that this morning, even among us, God. It's, it stirs us up and maybe makes us react. But God, we just want to be humble enough to listen and to let your word sink into our lives and then flow out through us in the way that we live toward others and toward the authorities that you've placed over us. And God, even this week in the small things, as we think about observing the laws that we observe every day and just working in with the rules and policies of our land, help us to see, God, as we do that, that we are serving you. And help us to have this whole view of life that it's, you care about all of it, God. It's no part of our existence that is off limits to you. It's no part of it that you are disinterested in. And so help us to acknowledge that as we live out our lives before you in humility and with open and humble hearts. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.